the Romans in a damn parade. Hi, and thanks for joining me. In this episode of the Ancient History Hound podcast, I'm going to discuss the Ancient Olympics. And as you might imagine, this is quite a biggie. So I'm going to quickly explain what I'll be covering. To start with, I'm going to look into how the games may have started. And then it's a case of what buildings and facilities existed on this site and how the site itself developed over time. After that, I'm going to get stuck into the events which took place and within what became a five-day event. I'm not just going to finish there though, I'm going to extend the discussion into what else happened at the Games. How were they viewed? How were they utilised and even politicised? Sports and politics, well, who'd have thought it? I'm going to put up some episode notes on my ancientblogger.com website, and this will include maps of the site, papers I've used, and other bits and pieces, which I hope will give you a better understanding of it all. I'm going to get straight on with it then, with the basics of the Olympic Games, the when and where of it all. The site of Olympia is found in the northwest part of the Peloponnese. This is lower mainland Greece. It's a large landmass connected to northern Greece via a narrow strip of land. The Peloponnese was where you found places such as Argus, Sparta, and going back further, Mycenae. In the northwest of this was a city called Elis, which grew in influence and came to dominate an area around it also called Elis. And this wasn't unusual in ancient Greece. The growth of what were called city-states or poles meant you had cities such as Sparta, Athens, Arcus and Corinth, all existing as what we might recognise as a sort of mini-state, hence the name city-state. I suppose the difference here is that city-states tended to have the name of the city and the state as different. For example, Attica and Athens. As Elis expanded, it took on new localities, and one of these was Olympia, which is around 50 kilometres to the southeast. It's been argued that Olympia was at the very least overseen by a polis or small community called Pisa, which itself was then taken under control by Elis. In the following centuries, this became a sore spot which anyone with a grievance against Elis might look to poke. Take the Spartan king Aegis, who in 400 BCE invaded Elis, and considered giving ownership of the games back to Pisa. As is frustratingly common, there are no surviving sources which give a more detailed account of how Elis came to own Olympia and how Pisa was originally involved. It's left to later sources to try and piece all of this together. In terms of physical evidence, the earliest we can soundly date Elis as being in control of Olympia is the 6th century BCE. And some of you listening might be asking the question, hang on, what about 776 BCE? That's, that's the traditional date for the Olympic Games. Surely this, this is where you'd start. And it is a date to start with, but not how you might think. And that's because the traditional date of 776 BCE is somewhat misleading, as I'll explain. And even in antiquity, there wasn't a definitive date given to when the games themselves started. We get the date of 776 BCE from a victor list, which is a man called Koroibos down as winning the foot race of 776 BCE. The author of this was Hippias, a famous philosopher who is around at the same time as Plato and Socrates. His work is dated to around 400 BCE, so straight away we can see a problem. Can you remember your sports team's result from 
a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, a season ago. Try 376 years ago. If we were just dealing with the accuracy, it would be difficult, but there's also a political aspect to all of this. And if you remember, I just mentioned how Sparta invaded Elis around 400 BCE, and immediately they started to ask whether Elis should be in charge of the Olympic Games anymore. Well, guess where Hippias was from? Yeah, you've guessed it. Along with Koroibos, he hailed from Elis. And so it's very plausible that this victory list, which was contained within a work on the Olympics, was aimed at reminding the Spartans and all of Greece how important Elis had always been to Olympia. Hippias wasn't the only one who put together a list of victors at Olympia, by the way. Other dates suggested have the earliest recorded winner a hundred years earlier, and Velius Paterlicus, a Roman writing in the Augustan period, went all out with the date of 1581 BCE as when the game started. Myths surrounding the foundation of the Olympic Games are plentiful. Zeus, King Ephetos, Heracles and others are all associated with the act. Strabo, writing in the 1st century BCE, summed it up nicely and he wrote that, and I quote, We must set aside the old stories about the foundation of the sanctuary and the position of the games. For the evidence about them is recounted in many different ways and is by no means reliable. The various myths suggest that there was no agreed and definitive date to any of this, and perhaps we need to abandon the idea that there was. Instead, consider the following, that the games, or rather one event featured as a form of ritual worship to Zeus, and then this slowly evolved. Excavations at Olympia revealed cult activity in the worship of Zeus starting around the mid-11th century BCE. The early accounts and variations of Victilis point to a single foot race as the original event. And one argument I read posited that originally it was just this, a foot race, and the winner got to light the fire at the sacred altar. Other arguments agree with this, that there was this ritualised race, just the details differ slightly. If the race was originally held firmly within the context of a religious ritual, then it explains a couple of aspects which often crop up. For example, the media presentation of a wreath of olives and no large prize. Likewise, the lack of women, and I'll come to women in the games later on. In the 7th century BCE, Olympia started taking things up a notch. Chariot races were added, perhaps because the aristocratic classes wanted in on this important and growing cult activity. There are also substantial physical developments at Olympia. In the 2nd century CE, Pausanias, the famous Greek writer, visited the site in what we might consider its fullest extent. And by this, I mean all the developments, changes, nips and tucks had largely taken place. His account is well worth reading because it captures not just the physical description, but the etiology of all. That is to say, the story behind each part of the site, or at least what he understood them to be. The trick missed here is that the layout changed as Olympia developed from its earliest form. And this is important to understand, as these changes were in response to something. Whatever this something was, is part of the story of Olympia. So now I'm going to describe, as best I can, the site at Olympia and some of these changes. As I've said, I'm going to have some maps and the like on my episode show notes, which will hopefully give a bit more help and a bit more visibility to this. Olympia was bordered by two geographical features. On its western flank was the river Cladios. This ran roughly north-south and acted as a natural barrier. 
To the north of the site was the Hill of Kronos, a conical hill which was another natural barrier. In fact, its lower slopes became a popular place, as we'll see. To the south of the hill were the treasuries and then the Altis. This was the sanctuary of Zeus, the reason why it was all here, and it contained some very important structures, including the famous Temple of Zeus. To the east was the stadium and the hippodrome. Pinched between the Altis and the river were a selection of buildings. There were baths, and running up the bank of the river, there was the palestra and gymnasium, which would have been in the northwest. To the south of the Altis was the Bluterion and some other later buildings, including more baths and general accommodation. And I need to perhaps emphasise just how basic the description I've given is. I hope it's helped a bit. The stadium is the best place to start, as it's arguably the easiest part of Olympia to identify. According to one myth, the 192 metre long running track, or 600 feet, was a result of Hercules measuring it out by putting one foot in front of the other 600 times. The word stadium carries with it an expectation which we need to trim back a bit. The first stadium, that is to say a flat piece of land with a running track and where the athletic events were contested, was most likely south of the Treasury Terrace, almost within the inside of the Altis. It wasn't until the middle of the 6th century BC that a new track and stadium was created. This time it was situated to the east of the Altis complex, roughly where the one which stands today stands. To the north of the stadium was the lower part of the Hill of Kronos, and excavations have revealed that this was a popular place to camp and probably watch the games. Around 150 wells were discovered there as lots of pottery and votive offerings. In the middle of the 5th century BC, things changed again. Perhaps due to the Temple of Zeus having been built, the track was lowered, and the earth used to raise the southern bank by 3 metres. Spectators could now watch from the north and from the south on the raised earth. The track remained 600 feet and was around 25 metres wide. Roll forward another 100 years, and yet more change occurred. The stadium was moved north by between 7 and 10 metres. The running track was raised by 30 centimetres, most likely to help with drainage. And on the subject of water, there was a channel along the outskirts of the track, which moved drinking water into fountains there. This move allowed for more spectators to sit and watch this time from the eastern and western ends. For the first time, the stadium was fully enclosed. Limestone sills, that is to say long strips of limestone, were found at each end of the track, and these had little grooves cut into them which allowed feet to grip easier. Post holes were also found. These seems to have marked out the starting positions for runners. And one constant was where the finishing line was, the western end of the track, which is where the Altis was. That final sprint, or hobble, was always made towards the Altis, and a set of seats for judges were found dating from this period 60 metres from the finishing line. When Rome occupied Greece, they changed things, but not that much. In the 1st century BC, it looks like benches were added to the southern bank. In the 2nd century CE, the course was raised again. By the time Pausanias visited, he was looking at what the final form of the stadium looked like. It was very different, and a different place the ones prior to it. A building linked thematically to the stadium was the gymnasium, and it was here that athletes practiced their running, throwing and jumping, though it wasn't until the 3rd century BC that the gymnasium was built. This stood at the northwestern edge of the complex, and in reality was just a large open space which stretched northwards, surrounded by colonnades and stowers. 
It was in fact larger than the stadium, with sections marked off so the runners could practice the length they would run in the stadium. As mentioned, this came as a relatively late development, but that it did suggest that the site needed somewhere where athletes could practice, perhaps away from distractions. Prior to this, we aren't sure exactly where they would have trained, but it's likely probably the same location. They just added the facility for them. To the south of this was the palestra, built slightly earlier than the gymnasium, and this was an open courtyard where the athletes could practice the more intimate arts of their pancration, wrestling and boxing. As I've said, this was a 3rd century BCE development. To the south of this, and ensconced in the far west of the site, were the baths. Despite what you might think, these were Greek, not Roman, and dated to the 5th century BCE. They weren't the sort of baths you might have expected or be familiar with. Forgive the pun, but I feel I need to plug my podcast on bathing in Greece and Rome, which will help explain this in a bit more detail. The likelihood, as I mentioned in the podcast, is that Greek baths would have featured hip baths at best and perhaps a small sweat room. But we can be a bit more certain as to a structure located along with the baths. And this was a swimming pool. It was 24 metres long and 1.6 metres deep. So it wasn't a pool used for an event or even for vigorous swimming or even a running bomb. As with the baths, these were purely for athletes to cool down and recover from the exertions of either an event or training. Moving to the centre of Olympia, we have the altis or sanctuary. As I've mentioned, this is what Olympia was all about. The very rationale behind the games was that they served as a form of religious devotion and observance. Two aspects of Greek culture which are very resonant today are theatre and athletic games or athletic events. Yet it's easy to forget that both were forms of what we might today think of as religious observation or religious worship. The oldest building in the Altis was the Temple to Hera. This stood in the northwest of the Altis near the foot of the hill of Kronos. It was 169 feet by 63 feet, and though the exact date is argued, as there have been previous versions to it, the date given for it is around 600 BCE. Despite Zeus being the main deity worshipped here, certainly the oldest, it wasn't until the middle of the 5th century BCE that he had a temple made for him. This temple was the famous one with a seated statue of Zeus made by Phidias. What predated the temple was the altar to Zeus, which was the whole reason the game started in the first place. The altar was elliptical in shape and consisted of an elevated base approached by steps. From the base rose a large mound made of the ashes of the thighs of animal victims sacrificed to Zeus. The total height of the altar was 22 feet, which is about just under 7 metres. The temple to Zeus was in the southern part of the Altis. The altar to Zeus was nearer to the temple of Hera, and next to it was the Pelopion. The Pelopion was a sort of tomb, and it was dedicated to Pelops, a character with very strong ties to the site and to one event at the Olympics. For the next couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about Pelops, not just his background, but how his myth integrated into the site. Pelops is a fascinating character. As a boy, Tantalus, his father, decided to test the ability of the gods, which is always a good idea and never, never ends badly. Rather than a simple pop quiz, he killed his son Pelops and served him as food to them. Zeus spotted this pretty quickly and sent the father to Hades to suffer eternal punishment. This took the form of being stood in a pool of water and near a fruit tree. 
Whenever Tantalus tried to take some fruit to eat, the branches moved away, and likewise the water receded when he went to drink. He was tormented by hunger and thirst. And I think that's where we get the word tantalised from. Pelops was restored to his human form, though his shoulder had unfortunately been eaten by the goddess Demeter. Now, I suppose that does kind of prove Tantalus right about the failing test hypothesis. In any case, Pelops was given an ivory shoulder instead. Not surprisingly, Pelops moved home and journeyed to southern Greece, where he competed to win the hand of Hippodamia. She was the daughter of King Anemus, who ruled over Pisa. And if you remember, this was the city which may have owned Olympia prior to Elis. So straight away, this is a myth very focused on Pisa and Olympia. As with many a mythical romance, things weren't going to be easy. The king was a tad picky. If you wanted to win her hand, you had to beat him in a chariot race, which started at Olympia and ended at the Isthmus of Corinth. Just to make things trickier, any suitor had to ride with Hippodamia in his chariot. And I suppose this was uh, an attempt to distract the suitor. What also didn't help was that the king had near magical horses given to him by the gods. The chariot race was played for big stakes, and I mean this literally, because if you lost, the king got to stick your head on one. That is to say, he killed you and displayed parts of your body around the palace. Pelops wasn't shy of a few tricks himself, though. Firstly, he had some magical horses of his own, and they were given to him by Poseidon, who he had a relationship with. Secondly, he bribed Matillus, the king's charioteer, who was in love with Hippodamia. Matillus agreed to replace the pins and the axles in the king's chariot with ones made from beeswax. In return, Matillus was promised a night with Hippodamia, because that, ladies and gentlemen, is romance, Greek myth style. The plan went well. In some versions of the myth, the king was beaten and killed himself. In others, his chariot collapsed due to those beeswax pins, and he was dragged horribly to his death. But on the upside, no awkward wedding speeches. Where things got problematic was when Matillus claimed his side of the deal, which Pelops pretended not to know about. As they drove back across the sea, because remember, remember those magic horses, Pelops kicked Matillus off the chariot. Before he drowned, he laid a curse on the family of Pelops, and it's fair to say that this is one of the most effective curses laid out in Greek myth. I won't go into this too much because there is so much of it, but the children and grandchildren of Pelops included such acts as a brother serving another his own children for dinner as a trick, that seems familiar, incest, parricide, that's murdering your parents, a daughter being sacrificed by her father, infidelity, and a wanton disregard for tapestries. Yeah, that's right, I'm looking at you, Agamemnon. And yet, I reckon in the modern time, this bunch would still have Insta and Facebook profiles, which made them seem like they're a happy-go-lucky bunch whose kids were well-behaved and who went on nice holidays. Perhaps fewer food pictures, though. Despite all of this, Pelops was a unifying character in Greek myth. The name Peloponnese was derived from him. His famous chariot race was very relevant to Olympia. The worship of Pelops seems to have been founded around the same time as the chariot race was introduced, which makes sense as it afforded the chariot race at Olympia its own foundation myth. The Pelopian is thought to have been developed in the late 7th century BCE, although, as with most things, there's a bit of debate over this. A point to consider about this all is whether the promotion of him was tied into Pisa taking temporary control of Olympia. Pelops was a king of Pisa, so there may have been some political resonance here. Even so, the counter might be that when Elis took control, they didn't abandon the Peloponnian. In fact, 
they went a step further. The myth of Pelops came to be used as a theme in one of the friezes in the later Temple of Zeus. Ellis was therefore happy to promote him. But much like Tantalus preparing that meal, I might just be splitting airs. So let's move away from the Altis and pick up on a few of the other buildings and structures. To the south of the Altis was the Buletarian, and this dated to the 6th century BCE. It's where the athletes drew lots, swore oaths, appealed decisions, and where the organisers of the games met. And here's one you won't find on some of the older maps, and even at the site today, the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome was a track where the equestrian events happened, and it had experts scratching their heads for many a year, as no one could find it. Pausanias had described exactly where it was, namely just south of the stadium, and running parallel to it, but again, nothing was found. What hadn't helped was that the course of a nearby river, the Alpheus, had changed course over time and flooded the southeastern part of Olympia. However, in 2008, a team located the Hippodrome. Using modern geophysical methods, they systematically searched the area for the first time. The experts, Armin Gruber and Christian Hubner, who specialised in the use of geomagnetic and georadio techniques, were able to map soil disturbances such as watercourses, ditches and walls. Conspicuous rectilinear structures were indeed discovered along a stretch of almost 1,200 metres. This level lay some two metres under the modern-day surface, which gives an idea of how much flood silt and material had covered it. Dating the Hippodrome hasn't been done yet because it's only been confirmed through this, through this way I've described. Yet we can say with some confidence that a track for horse racing events was present in the 7th century BCE. Think of Hippodromes and you might picture the Circus Maximus at Rome, and that wouldn't be the worst thing to do as it functioned in much the same way. The track was a long piece of flat ground with a central spine and turning posts at each end. Exactly how long it was is debated, and I've read that a lap varied from 600 metres up to a kilometre. In some ways, the actual distance isn't wholly important as, say, a race run in a straight line, because teams and riders will be overtaken on the outside and not sticking to a determined set distance. An oval track does present one challenge, which a straight racing track doesn't. How do you ensure a fair start? Were riders and teams positioned like runners in, say, the 400 metres run? That is to say, a staggered lane fashion? I suppose that's one possibility. But that only works if you have set lanes for people to stay in or initially run in. Also, try doing this with teams of horses. According to Pausanias, this problem was resolved by Cleotus, who created a starting gate system which looked like an isosceles triangle when viewed from above. A mechanism lowered ropes which were in front of the horses, starting with those at the back. And I'll put an image, if I can, on my show notes of that. Chariot racing was a dangerous sport. Greek myth and Greek tragedy, much like the Hippodromes, are littered with bits of chariots. In the Iliad, the chariot race was more about the dangerous driving than the event itself. Euripides' play Hippolytus featured a chariot accident which went very, very badly for the eponymous character. For those watching, it must have been a very tense, dramatic and exciting event, even more so for those in it. What then can we make of an altar located halfway along the southern side of the track and dedicated to Taraxippus? This translates as horse scarer, and was said to be some entity which could cause horses to, well, become very scared for no reason. Who exactly the horse scarer was isn't clear. Pausanias wrote of several options, including this is a grave to Myrtilus, that charioteer Pelops threw into the sea. 
Pausanias' preferred option was this was an epithet to Poseidon, who, as you might know, was the deity associated with horses. Therefore, this altar might have been a way of dealing with what we would call pre-match nerves. Charioteers and riders offered sacrifices, or general offerings, to ensure that they would be kept safe from any frenzied horseplay. When I spoke about the stadium, I said how it changed over time in both what it looked like and even where it was. If you're a visitor in the early games, the site would have been quite sparse, with a running track by the treasury, perhaps with the altar to Zeus at the end of it, and the Temple of Hera, oh and also the Pelopion. Roll forward to the classical era and suddenly things get interesting with baths, the Temple of Zeus and a new stadium in a different place. Finally, in the Hellenistic period, there's the Gymnasium Palestra and even a Tholos added by Philip of Macedon, otherwise known as Alexander the Great's dad. So hopefully now you've got an idea of the facilities. As I've said, I'll have some maps on the episode show notes which will help you out with this. The theme you get from Olympia is that it was a site often undergoing some form of change and development. And this theme is also present in the sporting events held at Olympia. And there's a logical cause and effect here. You build or improve a facility of an area because more stuff is going on. By the classical period, the games at Olympia were stretched out over five days. This was to accommodate the games at their fullest. Initially, this wasn't the case. Assuming the only event was a single foot race, we can't expect that this required any alteration of the duration of the sacrifices and festival to Zeus. However, as more events were added, more time was needed. In the 7th century BCE, three days were set aside, and then we come to the classical period of the 5th century BCE and the five days. One constant was the cycle of four years between the games at Olympia, which became a recognised unit of time known as an Olympiad. They were also held in midsummer which might explain a point about athletic attire I'll come to later. Scholars have been able to build a rough outline of events over the five days, though there is some debate and I dare say some tweaking may have occurred in each Olympics. And some events only made brief appearances and others came into play later on. And what I want to try and do is talk through these events sequentially and as they may have happened in the course of a five-day programme. I'll take each event and talk about it in a bit more detail, including when it was added. The first day of the games involved the oath-taking by both athletes and judges. In the case of the athletes, this was more a formality than anything else. In order to compete at Olympia, you needed to have sworn an oath previously that you'd been training for at least 10 months, and had spent a month in Ellis training. These weren't people who just rolled up on the day, and this sort of collides with the notion of the honest amateur. Sure, they weren't paid anything for winning, but your average Greek couldn't afford to give up work for nearly a year and pay the bills of trainers and accommodation. This should come with a caveat, though, that this was probably the expectation when the games were at their peak in and around the classical period and later. Oath-taking wasn't just taken by individuals, it was applied to all of Greece in a way. The Olympic truce, which seems to have been established at an early point in the development of the games, was a truce which applied to those travelling to and from it. War Legal disputes and everything in between were put on hold so there could be no disruption. However, this didn't separate the games from what was going on outside them. They were still buffeted by the political relationships between the city-states of Greece, and I'll be looking at this toward the end of the podcast. From what we know, the truce was initially a month, and then extended up to three, and this might have been prompted by those travelling from further afield to get to Olympia, this itself, because of the increasing importance of the games. 
I mentioned judges taking an oath. We might think of these as not just judges, but organisers of the games, or at least those responsible in some way for the wider aspects of it outside the sporting events. Originally, there was one or two, chosen by lot from the Aeleans. This was increased to nine after 400 BCE, and finally 12. What's of note here is that they came to be selected from tribes in Elis. When Elis lost territory to Arcadia in the 4th century BCE, the number of tribes was lowered, and thus fewer judges were chosen, though this was only temporary. Box ticking wasn't the only form of exercise on the first day, as it was also the day when the boys competed. The events the boys competed in changed at points, and I'll discuss them in more detail when I come to the respective men's events. The main question, and in truth the main unsolved question, is what defined a boy's category? In his book The Greeks and Greek Love, James Davidson spends time debating the whole issue of age definition in ancient Greece. In short, it's very difficult to get a fully detailed and coordinated classification here, mainly because Greeks didn't inherently define age by years, and secondly, because these classifications where they can be sketched out weren't standard. This is why I used the word coordinated earlier. One city-state might have an age range for a boy that another slightly differed on. That's not to say that there were 45-year-old men running around Greece claiming to be much, much younger. Civilization would have to wait to the onset of sports cars, hair implants and Botox for that to happen. Instead, it's more an observation as to how our terms and structures, for example, defining age specifically by years, doesn't always map across well to antiquity. At other Greek games, there were additional age classifications sometimes of beardless youths. So at these, you had boys, youths and men. And there's even evidence that these could be subdivided. At Olympia, the system was quite simple. If you look like a man, and this would most likely have been obvious in probably most of the cases, then you participated in that category. It would have been for the judges at Olympia to confirm what category you competed in. And though this is occasionally contested, as a whole it seems to have worked. The fuzzy area, and not just around the face, would most likely have been athletes in their late teens. The boys weren't the only ones to compete on that first day. In 396 BC, a contest for the heralds and trumpeters was introduced. Both had important roles in the games, heralds as those announcing the winner, and trumpeters starting races, and in the equestrian events, signalling the last lap. Though this might seem a bit odd, we need to remind ourselves that all of these events were about offering Zeus the best you could. For the trumpeters, who could give the clearest and most in tune sound, and for the heralds likewise, who was the clearest and the loudest. Hopefully, both winners would have recovered as the next day it would require them in what became a defining event of the Games. But before I get to that, here's a word from the Hellenic Age podcast. Fans of the ancient history hound, looking for an additional show to supplement your knowledge of the ancient world? Consider the Hellenistic Age podcast, covering from the conquest of Alexander the Great to the death of Cleopatra. I, Derek, will be your guide as we explore 300 years of history, from the lurid politicking and scholarship of Egyptian Alexandria to the elusive Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms of the Far East. You can find my show on any podcast platform by searching Hellenistic Age Podcast or checking out my website at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com. As you may have seen on Twitter, I'm always happy to swap adverts to help ancient history podcasters and those who enjoy them to hook up a sort of swipe right thing. If you fancy swapping ads, just message me. Right, so back to the big second day I was hyping up. All the action happened at the Hippodrome because this was when the horse racing 
and the famous chariot race took place. The consensus on our sources is that the four-horse chariot race was introduced in 680 BCE, and it's argued that this reflected a need for the aristocratic classes of the city-states to have their own event where they could attain glory. But where an individual in an event might win fame through his own talent, a talent of a different kind was needed to win the chariot race. And I'm talking of the talent as a fiscal unit, because training a team of four horses, stabling them, and then hiring a charioteer cost a great deal of money. Needless to say, individuals literally cashed in on this. The early 5th century BCE Sicilian tyrants, such as Gelon, made political capital out of winning the glory for their respective cities. It was a sure way to shore up political goodwill, despite them being, you know, tyrants. It might surprise you, but Spartans were particularly successful with their chariot teams. OK, they had slightly different view of wealth, but the fact was they had plenty of land and could meet the requirements of a team and a charioteer. In fact, one Spartan, Kyniska, really broke the mould when winning twice in the early 4th century BCE. And that's because Kyniska was a woman and had funds enough not only to enter teams, but to splurge out on a fantastic bronze statue of the horses, the chariot and the charioteer to celebrate. If Kyniska wasn't someone you'd heard about, then I suspect the next winning sponsor was. Alcibiades, famous for having more faces than a Medusan bob, ensured everyone knew of the success he'd brought to Athens when he won in 416 BCE. I say his team won, but he actually entered several teams, just to be sure. You could argue whether his motives were truly about winning glory for himself or winning it for Athens, but what's certain is that he used it as political leverage with the voter base there. The four-horse chariot race was known as the Tethrippon. It was 12 laps of dangerous racing. After leaving the gates, the teams headed westward in a counterclockwise direction. It's been pointed out this meant you placed your strongest and most capable horse on the right of the team. The chariot itself was a two-wheeler. This wasn't a Boudicca-style thunder wagon. It was light and was there to support the charioteer and sometimes an extra person. This wasn't the only chariot race to take place. In 480 BC, the Sonoris made its debut. This was nine laps with a two-horse team, and there was a version of this which had someone travelling in the chariot alongside the charioteer. Their role was to finish the race as they ran the last lap. This was known as the Apabatae. Both the Zethrippon and the Sonoris had a pollen version of the race, the former in 372 BC and the latter in 278 BC, and these were for colts and for fillies to run in. The last two events I come to represent what might be called failed experiments. In 500 BCE, the Apennae was run. This is a seated chariot race with mules. It wasn't unique to Olympia. In fact, a nice image of it features on a vase for the Panathenaic Games at Athens. This race could have been a version of the modern-day trotting events. In any case, it was dropped in 444 BCE. Where you could argue that the Apennae was more modest spectacle, the form of a race run only once in 67 CE was the absolute opposite. Not two mules, but ten, yes, ten horses pulling a chariot. The checklist for known individuals who might have prompted this bizarre and practical showcase of an event is short. Even shorter when I say that it was a Roman emperor. Step forward Nero. Nero came off the chariot twice, but still managed to win. There's probably never been an Olympic event with so much effort was put into not winning by the other competitors. Equestrian events didn't just mean chariots. Horses were equally a mark of the elite, and so horse races were also ran. There was the Calais, a 12-lap race which made its first appearance in 648 BCE. 
So not that long after the first chariot race. Much like the chariot races, there was a cult version which had to wait until 256 BCE. In 496 BCE, the Calpe was run. The last lap was run by the rider, though this time with the reins of his horse in hand. All of these events were over by the middle of the day or thereabouts. In the afternoon, it was back to the athletics, and specifically the pentathlon. The action would now take place mostly in the stadium, without horses, and also without clothing. And it's that point in the podcast where I need to talk about nudity. The modern view, and I accept there are exceptions, is why would you want to compete naked? And I'd throw the question back, why wouldn't you? The events took place during the summer, and it wasn't as if the ancient Greeks had an abundance of options in terms of clothing which was suited to athletics. Plus, the Greeks seemed less bothered about nudity than ourselves in the modern era. Greeks tended to exercise nude in the gymnasia, so this was simply a logical extension. Exactly when they started to exercise this way is debated. One story told by Pausanias suggests this all happened when a runner had his loincloth slip and realised that he could run faster. This lucky wardrobe malfunction was said to have happened in 720 BCE. However, Thucydides, writing in the 5th century BCE, suggested that the Spartans had started this more recently. Pausanias' account described the runner as only wearing a loincloth, and perhaps that's as much as any athlete wore previously. So, for the Greeks, it can't have registered as much of being a change, and perhaps this is why it's not specifically detailed anywhere. It didn't seem that significant. The ancient Greek pentathlon consisted of the foot race, discus, javelin throw, long jump and wrestling. It's said to have started in 708 BCE, and if we take that as fact, then it predated the equestrian events. In the 7th century BC, a boy's pentathlon was added, but this was dropped soon after, apparently due to how taxing it was. The order of the events isn't clear, and it's possible that this could change, so I'll start with the foot race. And this was a single length of the track in the stadium, which was just shy of 200 metres. The discus would have also taken place in the stadium, as I mentioned earlier, the track formed part of it, so there would have been an area set aside for it. The discus varied in weight between 1.3 and 5.7 kilograms, and measured between 17 and 34 centimetres in diameter. As with other events, this was a known discipline practised elsewhere. In the Iliad, the Myrmidons spent their time practising it whilst Achilles sulked, and who can forget Odysseus rising to the challenge of the Phaeacians in the Odyssey and hurling his further than the rest. In terms of distance thrown, the accounts are sometimes fantastical. Phallius of Croton was said to have thrown it 95 feet, much like anything in antiquity, measurements weren't always standardised, so it's unclear how far this really was. And just to support this, he was also recorded as jumping 50 feet in the long jump. The long jump saw contestants using hand weights to help them. Aristotle thought these made it easy to jump as it gave the athletes something to push against. Pausanias described these hand weights, or halteres, and I quote, as elongated circle or ellipse, which is cut through but not exactly at the middle made so that the fingers of the hand can pass through them, just as they do through the handle of a shield. And there are some good vase images of this, with the athlete holding the weights before or during the jump. The only discipline not to take place in the stadium was the wrestling. This happened in a sandy pit near the altar of Zeus. Wrestling was also a competition on its own, and I'll talk about it a bit more then. The last event I come to is the javelin. It's debated whether it was distance or accuracy which mattered in this discipline, or perhaps both. An insight into this is found in a speech made by Antiphon in 425 BCE, where he defended a boy 
who'd accidentally killed another boy in the gymnasium. The boy in question had thrown his javelin, and the other boy had seemingly got in the way. The defence rested on the premise that the boy throwing had done so into that pre-designated target area, and as such, the victim was culpable in some way. It's not clear exactly how you won the pentathlon. Herodotus wrote of Tissamenos, who won only two of the disciplines, but not the event itself. So perhaps if one person didn't win the majority of the events, placings in other events helped decide the outcome from those who had. With the pentathlon over, any spectators would move on to the evening delights of feasting or just getting out of the sun. The morning of day three was given over to a sacrifice made to Zeus. This was a formidable spectacle and the linchpin of the games. By midday, the athletes gathered for one type of discipline, running. There were three races featured in the afternoon. The stayed, which was a shortish sprint. The stayed at Olympia measured 192 metres. As mentioned earlier, this was probably the original athletic event at Olympia. The victorless, though not wholly reliable, record just the winners of the stayed for the first 13 Olympic Games, if, if you want to call them that. And if we can't hold these as wholly accurate, what we do suggest is that the stayed was the only event for much of the 8th century BCE. The boys' race version of this, from the victorless again as a source, seemed to have come through in the 7th century BCE, so a bit later on. In 724 BCE, the diolos was added, and this was two lengths of the stayed. The original race was run towards the Altis, which was at the western end of the track, so it's likely that this race was started at the western end, and so the runners could finish the run facing the Altis. The third race was the longest distance run at Olympia. The Dolichos came in shortly after the Dialos in 720 BCE. The consensus was that this was 5,000 metres, and so would require the runner to run probably 26 stades or thereabouts. What we don't have any mention of is possibly the type of race most associated with the modern Olympics, the marathon. So it goes that the marathon race was based on a runner leaving the battle site at Marathon where the Greeks had won a spectacular victory against a Persian force in 490 BCE. He then ran to Athens, 26 miles in distance, to declare victory and then died of exhaustion. This story was first recorded in the 2nd century CE, so long after the Battle of Marathon. No contemporary historian such as Thucydides or Herodotus mentioned it, which is very damning given that's exactly the sort of thing Herodotus would write about. And I can say that because he did write of a long-distance run made just before the Battle of Marathon. In his account, Philippides was sent by Athens to Sparta to appeal for help against the invading force. It wasn't just silence from Herodotus. Pliny catalogued a number of famous long-distance runners and where they ran, and this included Philippides in his 220km run to Sparta. More impressively, it also mentioned an eight-year-old boy who ran 114km from noon to nightfall. It wasn't just later fantastic accounts. A statue base at Epidauros had inscribed upon it the following. I am Drymos, the son of Theodorus, who announced his Olympic victory here in Epidauros on the same day as the victory, running to the glorious grove of the god, an example of my manliness. My fatherland is horsey Argos. Apart from the use of horsey Argos, what makes this stand out is that a run back home was a distance of 225 kilometres. The reality is that the marathon as a race was a modern take on an event which at best was misinterpreted and most likely falsified. However, it was a successful event used to sell the modern Olympics. But back to the events at Olympia. 
For the single-stayed and double-stayed race, it was likely that there were heats. As I mentioned, the track on the stadium had posts to assign out individual starting positions. The difference between the modern and ancient heats was that only the winner progressed. This might allow for several heats and therefore a large number of runners. Only one race was left and this took place on the fourth day which was the last day of athletic events. It closed the games and perhaps offered a nice balance to what was a brutal day. The fourth day was when things got up close and very, very personal. It was the time for combat sports, the boxing, wrestling and pancration. I'll start with wrestling. This featured in Homer and was an early edition, the date of 708 BCE is commonly stated. Wrestlers looked to make their opponents submit in some way, throw them on their back or outside of the area set aside for the event. The first to score three points would win the contest. In wrestling and the other combat sports you could only compete against one person at a time. And it's suggested by a later source of the second century CE called Lucian that contestants were paired by choosing tokens. The winners of each round then drew again to fight another opponent. You might have spotted though that this relied on equal numbers. What if there was an odd number? Who would that person then fight? Well, it seems they would simply have been given a bye. Does that seem unfair? I suppose it does. But we need to remember that chance could easily be explained as the will of the gods. Though I'm sure those who lost out to someone who'd had a bye probably had a bit of a, a grumble about it as well. As mentioned, the wrestling took place near the altar to Zeus, but the next two events would have taken place in the stadium. Boxing, much like wrestling, had occurred at the funeral games of Patroclus in Homer's Iliad. Like wrestling, it belonged to an established form of contest, and as you might expect, became an early edition, making its debut in 688 BCE. Like wrestling, there was also a category for boys. Boxers fought with no rounds, it was a straight-up fight. Instead of gloves, they bound their hands with leather straps. A victory was achieved when one of the pair either submitted or was unable to defend himself. Blows were aimed at the head and face. It doesn't seem as if body shots were permitted or deemed viable. The outcome of this wasn't pretty. There are numerous references to the state of boxers' ears in the sources. Pancration translates roughly as all might. It was a combination of wrestling and boxing. You won by making your opponent submit and only biting and eye-gouging were off-limits, and it made its debut in 648 BCE. Interestingly, Sparta is not well represented in either this or the boxing, and it's not wholly clear why this is. One line of thought has been that both boxing and then Pancration involved submission, which was something Sparta wasn't keen on. We do know that Sparta practiced both boxing and Pancration, so we can only guess or debate why they didn't want to enter competitors in it at Olympia. The lack of rules in the Pancration allowed for a wide range of styles. Sestratos won his first of three victories at Olympia, employing a technique which saw him grab the fingers of his opponent and bend them until they submit him, and this earned him the nickname Fingerman. Possibly the most disturbing story, and one which says a lot about the Pancration, was the victory of Arachion. He won two Olympic victories in the 6th century BCE. In the second, he was being choked, but managed to dislocate his opponent's toe. His opponent submitted, but Arachion was dead at that point, but he was still pronounced the winner and crowned with the wreath. And if you're wondering, would the ancient Greeks make boys undertake the Pancration because it does seem a bit brutal? Yeah, you know, of course they did. And this came later in 200 BCE. 
Don't worry, you think of the age range I spoke about earlier. This wasn't eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds trying to kill each other. You know, it was just late, late teenagers trying to do it, so yeah, that's okay. And I sense we need a bit of light relief after all of that. And the final event, or at least after 520 BCE when it was introduced, provided exactly that. This was the race in armour called the Hoplitodromos, a single stayed run by those carrying at the very least a shield, probably a helmet and greaves. These were provided at the event, presumably in case anyone had a lighter one with go faster stripes on it, so everyone had exactly the same weighted shield. I suppose it makes sense. Like many events, this had the theme of military skill running through it, and it's been argued that the distance which they ran was also the effective range of archers at this time, and so it was a way of showing how quickly a hoplite or infantryman might close the gap between them. Of course, this wasn't always the case. Nicarchus, a Greek poet of the 1st century CE, wrote an epigram about Marcus, who ran in an armour race. He was still running at midnight, and the stadium authorities blocked the stadium thinking he was a statue. And as someone who still tries to run whenever he can, I can only feel empathy across the ages with Marcus. The fifth day of the games was given to a procession of the athletes and the winners receiving their wreaths of olive. It wasn't until you received that wreath that you were a victor. It would have made sense for any disputes over a decision to have been made at this point, as athletes, as I mentioned, could appeal an outcome. As I've hopefully got across, competition at the games was intense and it wasn't beyond an athlete or even an official, to bend the rules a little. Herodotus attributed a reference to false starts in his account of Themistocles prior to the Battle of Salamis in 480 BCE. According to him, Themistocles was rebuked by a Corinthian general for the idea of defending Salamis, and was told, at the games, Themistocles, those who start too soon are flogged. Themistocles responded, saying, but those who wait too long receive no crown of victory. In terms of the foot races, there has been work done on how the start may be policed, perhaps with ropes, and I'll put a link to this on my show notes, and I recently tweeted it. Physical evidence of cheating existed at Olympia, or at least according to Pausanias, who commented on the bronze statues of Zeus on the slopes of the hill of Kronos. These were paid for out of fines against athletes. A date of the 4th century BC was given for the first of these, and it's noted that the first form of cheating was wrestlers being paid off to lose. It wasn't just athletes who might get caught out. Two judges were fined after an appeal where their judgment over a foot race was seemingly judged itself to have been not just wrong, but deliberately wrong. The events of Olympia seem standard, and many are recognisable as what we'd expect to have occurred. Yet the Olympic Games were unique. Other games, such as those at Nemea, Delphi, and even the Panathenaea Athens, featured singing, music, acting, and painting, as measurable competitions. If this sounds unusual, don't forget that Greek theatres was performed at a yearly event at Athens in a competition format. And this brings in the topic of other games, known as the Panhellenic Games. These were founded in the 6th century BCE and located at Delphi, the Isthmus of Corinth and Nemea. One you might have expected to have heard of in that list was the one at Athens called the Panathenaic Games. But this differed from the Panhellenic in two main ways. Firstly, there was a cash prize for winning. And secondly, some events were for Athenians only. They weren't for all Greeks, which is where we get Panhellenic from. Victory in the Olympics was a huge thing. In his speech for Flaccus, Cicero reckoned the Greeks took it as their own version of a Roman triumph. 
and I mentioned Alcibiades' use of it in a political context as well as those Sicilian tyrants. Victors may have statues set up in their home cities and become whatever the ancient Greek for celebrity was. A famous example of this is Milon of Croton. He was a wrestler who achieved near-legendary status, winning six victories in the wrestling, one of these in the boys' competition. He also found success in the games at Delphi. The tales told about him were, well, I'll let you decide for yourself. Pausanias wrote that he was so strong that he carried his own statue into the Altis, and that he could break a cord tied round his forehead just by holding his breath and flexing his veins. By the 3rd century CE, the tales about Milon had become even more fantastic. Athenaeus wrote that he used to eat 20 pounds of meat a day, and at Olympia he even carried around a four-year bull on his shoulders, which he butchered and ate that day. This is the very definition of eating on the hoof, or fast food, whichever you prefer. Milon died as he lived, it is said, and by that I mean doing something quite bizarre. Back home at Croton in southern Italy, he spied a tree trunk that had been partially split. He saw this as a test of strength, and tried to force the trunk apart, only for it to snap back on him, trapping him, until wolves came along and made short work of him. The athletes were of course the main stars here, but the event wasn't just about them. As we come towards the end of the episode, I want to cover some points which would have resulted in becoming too much of a wandering tangent, even for me. The first is the question surrounding women. Popular thought has it that women were banned from the games, perhaps due to all that male nudity. I'm not so sure that this was ever the case. A woman, in fact, had pride of place at the games, the priestess of Demeter Camine. Pausanias wrote that it was only married women who weren't permitted to be there, and he cited a story involving a mother who went to the games called Calipatera, and she was dressed as a male trainer because her son was competing there. When her son won, she celebrated, albeit a bit over the top, and thus her pretense was discovered. She escaped punishment partially due to her son's success, and also the distinguished family she came from. The punishment she escaped wasn't anything to be sniffed at. The law cited by Pausanias involved the guilty woman being hurled off a nearby cliff. The ban on married women therefore didn't mean women were banned, just married ones. Slaves, foreign women and virgins could all have attended. Olympia itself had a foot race event dedicated to Hera specifically for women. This took place every four years, though it's not known how close this was to the games at the Festival of Zeus, and by that I mean the ones I've been describing. This festival was known as the Heraion, and one argument sees that this was once as equally important as the one for Zeus. It was just that the Zeus one snowballed into what we call the Olympic Games, whereas the festival for Hera stayed as was, just featuring a basic foot race. This might also be a way of explaining the lack of women at the festival, because it came from a male-only festival to start with. The festival to Hera at Olympia was therefore just one of a number of games that were women-only festivals all around Greece. And on the subject of women and athletics, if you've listened to my podcast on Spartan women, you'd have heard how Spartan women and Spartan girls were encouraged to keep fit and healthy through athletics. I'm going to play devil's advocate now and ask a question that might seem surprising. Why would you want to go to Olympia and watch the games there? And I say this because it can't have been particularly comfortable viewing. Elian, writing in the 3rd century CE, reported of a slave being warned that he'd be sent to the Olympic Games as a punishment. A few centuries earlier, in the early imperial period, 
Epictetus, a philosopher, commented on the crushing crowds, awful heat, noise, and poor standard shock horror of the bathing facilities. These represent perhaps slightly alternate viewpoints from the CE period, which could easily be filed in the grumpy old man pile. But we can use basic logistics to form a picture of what the Olympics must have been like back in the 5th century BC, or at least when it was popular prior to the Romans. A couple words come to mind. Hot, cramped and expensive. I'll admit my own prejudice in this. I'm not one for big crowds, outdoor events where there's minimal sanitary conditions and lots of heat and lots of noise. So perhaps I'm feeling this a bit too much, but it's a good question to ask. Numbers attending the games is difficult to speculate, but estimates for the stadium capacity run into the tens of thousands. I even read 40,000 as a capacity for the stadium when it was fully completed. That aside, people did go, plenty of them. So let's flip the question. Why would you go? Well, in many ways, the games offered a rare scenario wherein you'd have people from all across the Greek world meeting in one place and trying not to kill each other. There's an interesting story which says Herodotus made a beeline for the games early on in his career where he gave readings from his histories and it was this neat piece of business think which secured his work fame. He realised he could get a better audience there than going around all of the city-states independently. If there were people happy to listen, then there was space for people to talk. And one thing I can tell you about ancient Greece is there were no small number of people willing to talk about something. In the realms of politics, this gave certain individuals the opportunity to make a speech in one place and have it heard quite literally across Greece. So it goes that Georgius of Leontini delivered such a speech in 408 BC at Olympia. He implored the Greeks to cease their infighting and unite against the Persians. In 388 BC, Lysias made a similar case, though this time he included Dionysus of Syracuse as a threat to the wider Greek people. When Alexander the Great wanted to reach the ears of the Greek people and make an announcement about Greek exiles being able to return, he sent an envoy to Olympia to make that message clear there. The Olympic Games offered a space for politics, yet in the 5th century BCE, the game itself became embroiled in a political fiasco involving Sparta. In 420 BCE, Sparta was banned from the Olympics when Ellis charged it with breaking the Olympic truce. Sparta was obviously outraged, and a Spartan called Lichias took things further. He gave his chariot and team over to Thebes, allowing them to use it at the Games. When they won using it, Lichias strode onto the racecourse and crowned the charioteer himself, making a huge statement. This was a mic drop moment done Spartan style. More subtle diplomacy was practiced at Olympia during the festival. The Mytilenean ambassadors made a speech to drum up support during the Peloponnesian War. And you might consider how the Games gave not quite a forum, an agora let's say, to networking across all levels of society, from nobles and politicians to even, dare I say it, historians. At the beginning of the podcast, I spoke about how the fixed date of 776 BC as the beginning to it all doesn't quite work, though I understand why a pin in the timeline was needed. Were we to reach the other end of the timeline, we'd come to 393 CE, when the Roman Emperor Constantine banned the games and in 426 CE, the sanctuary itself was demolished. I want to avoid the idea that everything was fine up until that point and Olympia was in some bubble. The incident with Sparta at the end of the 5th century BC showed that the site and the games were by no means exempt from the buffering, as I've said, of politics and intercity state warfare. In the 4th century BCE, Ellis lost in the war against its neighbour state Arcadia and temporarily lost ownership of the games, 
before eventually regaining it. Even then, this wasn't permanent. When Alexander took Greece under his control, Ellis became just a guardian of Olympia and not as it had been an independent owner. Thus began a repeating motif of Olympia getting the wrong sort of attention from its new owners. In 312 BCE, one of Alexander's generals called Telesphorus took against Ellis and plundered Olympia, though he did eventually return the treasures. In 146 BCE, the novelty of the new owner was that they weren't Greek. Rome was now the dominant force and had annexed Greece as a province of its own growing empire. In the early 1st century BCE, the Roman general Sulla used Olympia as a sort of piggyback to help fund his war with King Mithridates of Pontus. He's a fascinating character, by the way. If you get a chance, Adrian Mare wrote a book called The Poison King, and I can highly recommend it. Sulla didn't just move riches away from Olympia. In 80 BCE, he held the Olympic Games at Rome. It's unclear if this was going to be a permanent thing because he died a few years later. In the imperial period, there was the whole Nero being Nero thing at Olympia, but things seemed to have settled, most likely because Rome's empire had brought some, and I caveat that heavily, some stability to Greece. When Pausanias wrote his account of Olympia, most likely around 170 CE, what he described isn't a wasteland. It's a vibrant and active location with statues and temples in place. What I find particularly apt about the games at Olympia is how it kept developing and being reinvented. It evolved from what was most likely a single foot race dedicated to Zeus into a range of athletic events and then much, much more. For example, think of the Olympiad. I mentioned this earlier in the episode. It was a unit of four years as the Olympics took place every four years. This became the way ancient Greece measured points in its history. An event might take place and was referred to as happening in the 10th or 30th Olympiad, and sometimes even more specifically, for example, the first year of the 40th Olympiad. Culturally, it was of huge significance to the ancient Greece, and even a Roman emperor. I'll avoid the poorly crafted Agra joke again, but it really was a forum for people to network, gossip, and drink too much wine. And as I've mentioned, this gave later figures a place where they could make announcements and even political statements, all within a backdrop of sculpture and a wonder of the ancient world. Just think of the selfies that could have been. And I think the biggest achievement of Olympia was to appeal to the city-states and Greeks everywhere to find common ground and remember their shared cultural values. And this was particularly important because the Greek city-states performed at an Olympic level in terms of finding reasons to argue with each other. In Aristophanes' Lysistrata, there's a great reference to this. Lysistrata appeals to both representatives from Sparta and Athens that they both shared sacrifices at Olympia, and that they were part of a single family. And perhaps the games allowed a social valve to remind someone from a differing city-state, perhaps one that was even at war, that they were Greeks, and they did have a fair amount in common after all. And on that happiest of notes, I'm going to leave things there. I hope you've enjoyed this rather longer, perhaps Olympic-sized podcast. If you want to find me on social media, I'm at AncientBlogger on Twitter, and the same on Facebook and Instagram. My website is ancientblogger.com, and I'll be posting some episode notes on there, which I hope, as I said, will help. Till next time, keep safe and stay well.